Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by Neurobloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors, available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Dr. Peter Stone. Uh, he's an associate professor uh, in political science at Trinity College, Dublin. He's head of the department, uh, as well as the president of the Political Science Association of Ireland, PSAI. So we're going to talk about his work. So, Peter, thank you for coming. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, tell me a bit about your background and what got you interested in uh, political science. Well, I've had an interest in politics pretty much my uh, entire uh, adult life. I was uh, uh, active politically at uh, university and even before, uh, going all the way back to, I guess, uh, 1988, uh, when I wasn't old enough to vote yet, but was still very passionately caring about uh, Michael Dukakis' campaign for president. I uh, was... They always had sort of a kind of a philosophical mind. And so I was looking for uh, some way to combine my political uh, interest and my philosophical mind and political theory was, seemed like a very good fit for me. So what's your current course of study? What are you working on in terms of research and teaching? Uh, in terms of teaching, I teach the history of political thought uh, here at uh, Trinity. We talk, cover the everything from the ancient Greeks and Athenian democracy through into the modern modern era, uh, the whole idea of the social contract and things like that. Uh, my work is primarily around theories of democracy. Uh, as uh, you know, I'm very interested in the movement, growing movement uh, of bringing random selection uh, into politics through randomly selected citizens assemblies uh, and things like that. That's uh, something I'm very, I care very much about. Oh, and that's uh, sortition, is that right? That is correct. That's the, the the technical term for it would be there. But and I guess it sounds better for some people than saying selection by lottery or random selection there. So uh, lottery is a scary word for some people, but um, I'm fine with any of the terms. Well, I mean, is it a lottery? I thought in sortition, you pre-ask a group of people and say, hey, you know, we are going to have a random draw from the pool of people that are interested in the future for this position. Here's what it pays. Here's how it works, et cetera. So. I mean, people aren't like blindsided, chosen, pulled out of the street with a bag over their head, right? They know beforehand. 
No, but that would sound like a would be the uh, the plot of a good movie right there, actually, uh, if you put it like that. But uh, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, the way a typical process works is people are organizing the uh, the citizens' assembly or the uh, other sort of randomly selected assembly. They will obtain a big mailing list and they will send out a huge number of invitations because they know the uptake will probably be pretty low and they'll say, hey, we're convening this assembly. Would you like to do it here? So what we'll be doing, here's how long it'll take, here's what we'll give you. And then, you know, because the response rate's typically pretty low, they get a bunch of responses and then they... Uh, invite people with an eye to maintaining a balance in terms of gender, in terms of race, uh, in terms of uh, work that people do, often in terms of where people live, that sort of thing. Oh, so it's not random? They they prefer certain genders or races, or is it random? It's what they call a stratified random sample. So it is random, but they decide in advance that, like, look, if we do it randomly, it, we could by accident wind up with, you know, uh, 60, 40 men, or, you know, we might, might not wind up with like any African Americans in the sample or something like that. So they say, uh, okay, we're going to randomly select people, but we'll randomly select knowing that, okay, we're going to make sure we're going to have targets that we're going to shoot for in terms of certain dimensions, usually not too many, usually like maybe three or four dimensions, because really with a sample, it's hard to stratify more than that. But that way, you know, you don't by accident wind up with a sample that looks like all a bunch of rich white men or something like that. Okay. Where, where has this been used? Has it been used in universities or governments or companies, or is it not at that point yet? Uh, it has been in the development for a very long time. It actually got its start in the 70s. There were a number of experiments beginning then, starting in particular in the United States with a guy named Ned Crosby, uh, who has this center called the Jefferson Center. And uh, he started to convene these things that he called citizen juries. And they were purely uh, advisory there. You know, they were not part of government. There was just this independent think tank policy institute that would organize them. And then there were a variety of uh, a similar experiments convened by uh, academics afterwards, most notably the deliberative opinion polls organized by Jim Fishkin starting in the early 90s. But then people started to find ways to actually incorporate them into government decision-making there. So, for example, uh, you saw, uh, I think British Columbia was the very first to say, okay, British Columbia was saying to itself, we're thinking about reforming our election system, but leaving that to politicians might be a bad idea because, you know, they're having a self-interest in it. So let's convene a randomly selected uh, citizens' assembly to weigh in on what we should uh, do as far as reforming the election system goes. And then you have had a variety uh, of uh, of uh, uses uh, that have been building there uh, of increasing importance. The ones that I care about the most uh, and which I can talk about the most uh, is here in Ireland, where I work, where we have had now several uh, citizens' assemblies uh, held uh, as part of our process of amending the Constitution uh, over here. They will, you know, if there's a bunch of ideas people have for potentially potential reforms to the Constitution, they uh, convene this randomly selected citizens' assembly uh, to consider them. And that's how we got, for example, the uh, the uh, referendum to uh, for marriage equality, uh, for same-sex marriage, and then also uh, for repealing our constitutional ban on abortion. So what did you notice about the, uh, like, who was selected and how? How did that process happen? Did people have to opt in before, or how were they approached when, uh, you know, when you're selecting? 
Well, as I said, there was a fir- uh, there was a uh, it was a case where there it, for these the Irish case, for example, where there was a uh, a firm that was or, uh, a public a polling firm basically uh, that was told, hey, we need a big random sample of the Irish population, uh, and but, but in particular, we want to make sure that like uh, people come from all of the counties all over the island. So go and uh, collect uh, 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 recruit people for us. So they came up with this big random sample and they sent people invitations and uh, then people expressed an interest. And then, uh, of course, the, based on the interests, they conducted this stratified sample, like I said, to make sure that, like, uh, people from all over Ireland, uh, from different uh, socioeconomic groups, uh, different genders, and all of that were were uh, recruited. That's the, the standard process they've been using. So what did you notice about the dynamics of meetings like these? Like, how is it convened and what happens and how does it look? Well, the process uh, is... Uh, is uh, uh, a process that's been used for a lot of these kinds of deliberative events in the past. Uh, well, the usual format will be something like the following. Uh, everyone will, uh, uh, period, will get together over a series of days. Usually just run over a series of weekends, I should say. And over the weekend, you'll have some presentations per, uh, by experts that will present some of the basic facts at stake in the issue. And then there will also be testimony coming from various um, advocates and interest groups, people who have applied to uh, provide information. And then uh, the uh, participants have a chance to ask questions and attain more information from these, uh, these experts and from these advocates. And then the, uh, People will break down into small little, uh, little groups. So like individual little tables where like six of them will come together and they'll have a more intense discussion about the issue. Like, well, what do you think about that? And then they will, uh, all convene together again and the individual tables will report back their findings, uh, what they've come up with. And then the assembly will try to, you know, take every, all of this and, and hammer it into a set of uh, recommendations. Who takes the recommendations and then processes them? They're not raw from the minutes of the meeting. They're taken and processed by other people or how does that work? Well, there is a staff associated with it. So, for example, at each table, there'll be a facilitator who's there to make sure that like one person doesn't just just, you know, bully all the other people by talking nonstop and stuff like that. And uh, also responsible for, you know, helping them take down, okay, what did we decide? And then bring it back to the chair. And the chair, uh, together with the staff, is sort of going over and saying, okay, this is what we went over. And now let's form it into some uh, propositions and say, okay, it looks like we, it looks like most people think this. It looks like most people think this. But then it all goes back to the assembly for a vote, you know, where they have to say, okay, um, you know, uh, we, we, agree 75 to 24 in this uh, recommendation, uh, but we only agree, you know, 63 to uh, 36 to with this other recommendation there. So they'll be, the result would be a series of recommendations that they present to, in this case, it goes to the Irish Parliament here, uh, these recommendations. And then the Parliament has to make come up with a final bill uh, that will be based upon the rep- uh, recommendations made by the Assembly. Well, how do you know it doesn't become a game of telephone where the, uh, the recommendations either deliberately or accidentally get uh, changed and warped. And then, um, you know, the true voice of what the people want is not heard. By the, uh, do you mean by the, uh, by the chair of the assembly or by the parliament after they get the recommendations? Well, both. Any, any part along the process, I would think the message could be changed or could be altered or interpreted differently, et cetera, or either deliberate or accidental. 
Well, all of the recommendations that are made by the assembly have to be approved by the assembly. So it's not like the uh, it's not like the chair could just say, oh, well, I think we've decided this because it's going to go back to the whole assembly. And then these people can stand up and say, hey, wait a minute, we didn't agree to that at all or something like that, you know. Uh, and then, of course, uh, people are uh, have to submit their votes and the vote it's recorded like, OK, the vote for this was 75, 24. And people can see everybody who raised their hands and stuff like that in the room. So uh, the recommendations coming from the assembly would be, I think, pretty firm. Uh, but then then, of course, it has to go to the parliament and the parliament does have a lot of discretion in this. It's not like the parliament said, ah, well, you just send us all these recommendations and we'll just make them a law right right there and then they said okay we'll take your recommendations and then we'll decide what to do and then the parliament or what we call the doll in uh, in ireland that's the 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 technical name for it um that will uh, take the recommendations turn it into a constitutional amendment and then submit it to a referendum by the people because in ireland all constitutional amendments have to be approved by a referendum so what's been noticed about the difference when you have citizen groups involved in the decision-making versus not? Well, a couple of things have been noteworthy there. Um, for one thing, uh, a lot of people have pointed to the fact that the assemblies have been instrumental in getting around uh, a number of impasses in Irish politics. So I mentioned uh, the very first of these uh, was convened to deal with the issue of marriage equality, of like, should we have allow gay marriage in Ireland? And of course, you know, as you know, this is traditionally a very conservative Catholic country. So there was a lot of, uh, uh, there was enough strong opinions on it. And there were also a lot of politicians that were kind of um, looking over their shoulder, not sure what to do. Uh, and, uh, you know, the natural thing politicians often do there is to say, okay, let's just kind of Duck, duck and cover, uh, not get involved. So having this assembly come through and overwhelmingly support uh, legalizing marriage equality in Ireland was something that in some ways gave the politicians, you know, as it were, a, you know, permission to act there, to clearly to say, well, okay, I mean, this is what they could say, hey, look, we're just doing what the assembly told us, you know, that they, this was their clear opinion. And the same thing was true when we, you know, because Ireland used to have a constitutional ban on abortion. And again, of course, in a Catholic country, that's a very controversial issue. But then when the assembly overwhelmingly voted uh, uh, in favor of repealing the ban uh, and not to have like no laws not again, uh, uh, regarding abortion, regulating abortion, but to have uh, to have absolutely removed the absolute ban. Uh, again, the politicians could point to that and say, uh, well, you know, we're just doing what the uh, what the the assembly wanted there. We, you know, we're not, you know, we're not doing something uh, crazy on our own. So it helped in some, a lot of people say to move forward some very important uh, hot button issues in a very productive uh, way, because, you know, uh, we, we know things like, OK, we know who the assembly um experts were who t testified to these. We know what kind of advocates talked to them. In fact, you can watch on YouTube a lot of the testimony uh, that was presented. It was all recorded, these plenary sessions. So you can actually watch in YouTube who, who they listened to and what they said. Uh, and you can uh, then see, okay, here you've got um, a, a productive attempt to deal with some very, very controversial uh, issues there, try to move them forward in productive ways. Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by NeuroBloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. 
Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors, available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. Does this cause politicians then to farm out the controversial issues to assemblies? Or like what kind of behavior does this create or how does it change things? It creates some interesting incentives because on the one hand, I think the politicians were often happy to, as it were, assign the responsibility to someone else there. But at the same time, the politicians are also very clearly, uh, you know, they're keeping the, uh, their hands on the reins. They're, they're not willing just to just go say, okay, we'll sign off on anything that the assembly does. This was particularly clear with one the first assembly where uh, they endorsed the idea that the Irish constitution should contain guarantees of socioeconomic rights. So things like the right to health care, the right to housing, things like that. And the government had promised that they would respond to each of the assembly's recommendations. And the government's response to that recommendation was just, no, (laughs) we're not doing that. That's a, a case where the government definitely did a certain amount of picking and choosing. So it's definitely not been the case that this has been like, you know, an unfiltered voice that has gone through. And that's been a complaint or a concern some people have had. But at the same time, it has also clearly had an impact there. You know, you have seen things moving forward there that I think no one would have guessed would have moved forward uh, anywhere near as fast as these assemblies made possible. Oh, what was so fast or what? They got it done in uh, a few days instead of weeks or months or... Like, why do you think it went faster? Well, by I, I mean, I would say more like, you know, it took a year instead of, okay, we're going to be t- talking about this for the next 20 years or something like that. Because, you know, when, ho- there are, when there's an issue like, for example, uh, take the abortion issue, for example. Abortion had been a very hot issue in Ireland for a long time. It's had a constitutional ban on abortion since the early 80s. And then in the early 90s, there was an extremely controversial case, uh, and the European Union effectively said to Ireland, hey, you got to do something about this absolute ban on abortion. That's a problem there. Uh, and Ireland said, oh, sure, sure, we'll do that. And then they proceeded to do nothing for uh, 20 years. And then there was another hot button issue that arrived when a woman uh, who was not a Catholic woman uh, wound up dying in a hospital of a procedure that, you know, uh, in a situation where she could have been saved because she, but she was pregnant and the hospital was not willing to do something that would place the fetus in danger because the doctors were afraid they'd get arrested or something like that. And so again, there was this big outcry saying, we, you've got to do something about this absolute ban on abortion. And a lot of the politicians you could tell were just like, oh, sure we will. But that if the easiest thing for them to do is say, okay, we'll wait for the the outcry to die over and then maybe we'll worry about this in another 20 years uh the assembly kind of greased the wheels to say eh, let's not put this off another generation let's do something about it now uh, and it did have that effect and uh the people were very strongly in, in supportive of this i have to say you know the uh proposal to repeal the ban that went to the voters uh passed by like a i think with almost a two to one majority it was very it was very strongly endorsed and so people seem to have a lot of confidence in the recommendations of the assembly uh that went through so what about organizations that would hire their staff to run them using sortition you know maybe again they'd have a pre-selected group of people that say hey you know, let's say like a credit union or 
I don't know, some business. Um, has anyone done that or seen that or tried it? And do you think that would work? You know, you pay people a salary to be in position X. They're limited to do it, let's say, for one term only, maybe a year or two, uh, so they don't get entrenched in there. But they're chosen someone at random. What about that? It's a very interesting idea. And there have been experiments uh, in some directions like what you're talking about. For example, there have been radical political parties in Europe that have said, we believe in a radical kind of democracy. So we're going to, from among our party members, we're going to select who are going to be the candidates for the next elections, the next local elections, let's say. We'll select them by lottery from the members of the party, for example, or something like that. So that's probably the closest case I'm aware of. Some of these can get a little tricky because of the fact that, you know, these Irish assemblies, that was a commitment of meeting over a series of weekends over you know several months, let's say. Um, if you're getting into a, a commitment that's much larger than that, uh, it's hard to persuade people uh, who, let's face it, you know, like you said, we can't, we can't abduct people and put a bag over their head and carry them off somewhere there and make them do it. They have to want to do it. So it can be harder to uh, get them to commit to something that is uh, tremendously demanding. But of course, you know, for maybe a credit union, if let's say the selection was made for some official position from among the members of the credit union and the job burden wasn't too uh, intense and there was no chance of the person like running away with all the money in the credit union or something like that, you know, you had the right safeguards for that, then uh, it's an intriguing idea, I have to say. Has it, I mean, has anyone attempted it or is it too scary for most people or, you know, are there, is there even a legal framework for doing something like this? Like what, what would be, if someone were to do it, what do you think the first steps would be and what kind of company or organization might be most suitable? Uh, it's a very good question. And uh, I think that it would probably be, it would require the kind of company that had a lot of trust in their employees there, where they were really committed to having people very much involved in the culture and also just sort of drawing a commitment to drawing on what they call, you know, the wisdom of crowds, drawing on all of the wisdom of the company. Uh, there's a very interesting book uh, that I would recommend. Uh, it's uh, by two leading scholars of uh, the democracy in ancient Athens, where they did a lot of random selection of people. They used the sortition a lot to fill their offices. Uh, the book is called A Company of Citizens, and it's by uh, Josiah Ober and Brooke Banville. And it's very interesting, but it basically says, hey, we can learn from the Athenian experience, the experience of Athenian democracy. We can learn things about how to organize companies now. And one of their major conclusions is that one of the things that made Athenian democracy very successful, because it was like one of the most successful states in the Mediterranean at the time, one of the things that made it so successful was that they had this kind of culture and institutions that made it possible for all citizens, all male citizens, of course, to contribute to the political process, to have a chance to, to, to have a voice, to be in there and do something. So if you have a corporation that's organized in a way that says, hey, we want to maximize the contribution that our members make because we uh, trust them and we, we want to have them actively involved, then something like what we're talking about here might be a very uh, smart and interesting way to do that. Well, um, did they have a lot of success? And, and like, what was noticed? I don't know if the book gets into it at all, but was there any particular interesting stories? Uh, it's been a little while since I looked at the book, but, you know, they, I believe, looked at a num quite a number. They, they're experts on Athenian democracy. They know a lot about that. But then they were trying to look at, I think, 
some in examples of corporations and some of the literature on just what makes corporations successful. Because, as you know, there are, there are corporations that have some of them that basically say, okay, you know, we're just going to treat people like, you know, disposable drones, and that's our ma management philosophy. And there's others whose philosophy says, okay, we've got highly, we want people to be professionals here. We want to treat them like professionals, and then we'll, we'll make big demands on them, but we'll treat them with respect and make sure they're actively involved. And I think that uh, what Ober and Manful were both interested in is this, the second type of company and how many, that, like, what kind of parallels there are to the um, Athenian uh, experience. Are there any known downsides to sortition in any form that you've observed or read about? Well, you know, the good, the good thing about random selection is that it doesn't discriminate. And the bad thing about random selection is it doesn't discriminate. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it prevents you from selecting people for bad reasons, but it also selects you from, it prevents you from selecting people for good reasons. And that's one of the reasons why when pretty much ever people come up with ideas for using sortition, they never say, seem to say, hey, let's select the president by sortition or let's select the prime minister by sortition. Let's select the CEO by sortition, because if you're selecting just one person, then guess what? That one person could turn out to be a nut or that one person could turn out to be, you know, Charlie Manson or something like that. You know, one person. Uh, if you get the wrong person, you could go badly wrong. But if you like a hundred people for a different kind of job where you say, okay, we want a group of people to do something. Well, then, okay, you might get one uh, or two nutcases, but you know, you will be, have a, a, a meaningful body of people who can do things there. So that's probably one of the most in, uh, important lessons I think that's been learned is people seem to recognize, okay, sortition is a wonderful select when you need a group of people, but probably not the right idea if you've got to select that one person for that vital job. Well, I mean, what if um, it was a hybrid process? <clears throat> we have X number of candidates that were selected, you know, by sortition. And then maybe you have a group also selected by sortition that votes on the one that they think would be best. Maybe that would mitigate some of them, you know, getting crazy people in there. There has been proposals like, uh, like what you're describing suggested for things like, for example, the uh, appointment of judges, for example, to the Supreme Court in the United States, because, as you know, that's become an extremely polarizing, uh, hyper-political process. And so one uh, way of trying to sort of tone down the polarization that has been made is to say, look, how about we do this? How about uh, we, we have a process whereby uh, we consider a whole bunch of possible candidates. And let's just select, say, okay, which, which of these judges are qualified to be justices? So you get like five or six justices and you say, okay, they're all qualified. So we approve these are all qualified. Now, which one of them is going to actually get on the court? We'll pick the name at random. We'll use sortition to select that one judge. So there's that pre-screening that says, look, these are all competent, uh, qualified people to do the job. Uh, but the actual one who will get the job uh, will, get, will, will be selected uh, through a lottery. And I think, you know, that, that is a, that's an interesting kind of way of combining uh, things, a hybrid process like what you said. Who do you see that's um, exploring this space and pushing the limit to these type of things? Well, you're just, we're just getting to the point where uh, have had enough experience with these sortition that you're starting to see real decision-making bodies with some real power there. Uh, in the process. The British Columbia example I mentioned before, uh, you know, they made a recommendation, uh, but uh, the politicians were very careful to leave the final word to 
Actually, in that case, for a referendum, which was uh, um, which needed a sixty percent threshold to pass, so it's not surprising it didn't pass. Um, in the Irish case, again, the politicians were careful to say, "Okay, we're not going to put anything you say to an amendment. We're going to have to uh, look at your recommendations, and then uh, we'll decide what goes through to a referendum and what doesn't." But now you're starting to see some cases where it's these processes are really being worked into. Uh, government. Let me give you just three examples. Um, in the Mongolia right now, Mongolia now has a process where if you, uh, any time that the constitution is going to be amended, they have to convene. It's, it's, it's written down in the constitution. They have to convene, uh, one of these, uh, types of citizens assembly, what's called the deliberative opinion poll. It's just a technical term for a particular type of assembly. And uh, uh, that has to be convened to evaluate and to consider the proposition. In Belgium, in the German-speaking part of Belgium, uh, there is now for the uh, a randomly selected assembly uh, that sits alongside of the elected assemblies and takes part in the political process. And I believe, although I don't know a lot about the details, uh, part of the city of Paris uh, has just moved towards creating a similar kind of permanent um, citizen assembly uh, that would be working alongside of elected officials there. So these are some of the boldest steps that I'm seeing uh, being taken in this direction, because I think people like the idea of ordinary citizens having a chance to contribute, to take part in the political process. It's, it's good for the citizens and it's good for the political process there. It's, it's good for people's trust in the political process. Do you have any uh, insight into the Belgian example? Or in examples you've seen, um, do these, um, you know, random, randomly selected groups, they tend to come up with very different answers? Uh, I'm not sure I would say they come up with radically different answers. I think that they are often one, uh, people who are, uh, who are often good as a reality check. Um, sometimes they come up with different answers, I will say. Uh, occasionally they come up with surprising answers. One of the uh, examples of that, I believe, was, this is a while, quite a while ago, but I believe it was in the 90s, uh, there was one of these, what's called a deliberative opinion poll convened in Texas. And it was about, um, it was convened by, I guess, the, um, I forget what they call it there, uh, the commissioner for energy in the state there. And uh, they were asked to make some recommendations. And you know what they said? They said, hey, uh, yeah, we know this is a state full of oil and all that, but wind power, you know, we could be getting a lot more from wind power. We got lots of land out here. We could we have windmills and all that. We get lots more electricity that way. So that's not something you'd expect politicians in Texas to come up with, but it was a, something that this uh, randomly selected body came up with, and it made an impact. I mean, Texas took serious moves as a result uh, to um, expand its use of, um, of alternative energy there. So there are occasionally examples like that. But I also like the fact that uh, in many ways, one of the useful things that these citizens' assemblies can do um, is they can provide a, re- a bit of a reality check there. So on the one hand, they can come up with ideas themselves. On the other hand, they can look at what the politicians say and say, oh, you really want to do that? I don't know about that. That's, I think, uh, an equally valuable kind of task uh, for an assembly like this to perform. Are these citizens' assemblies or sortition itself, is it um, prone to any particular kinds of attacks or political maneuvering that other systems are not prone to? Oh, well, there's a lot of, there's definitely political maneuvering there. Uh, as I've already said, depending on how important a role they have in the political system, uh, it can be a case where uh, it's easy for the politicians to say, pick and choose and say, ah, well, we'll go through a forward with this and we won't go forward with that. Um, an example of that was the, uh, there was a, an assembly like this that was convened by uh, President Macron 
in France uh, to evaluate how should France respond to climate change. And uh, they had came up with a huge number of recommendations. And while the president had originally said, oh, yes, well, we're going to act on all these, you know, in an unfiltered kind of way. Turns out at the end of the day, he was willing to apply quite a bit of a filter uh, to it. Uh, so this is there's definitely a lot of political maneuvering that goes on there. There's politicians who are unwilling to share power and who get resentful about any effort to demand that they share power. Probably one of the hardest things to uh, happen when you move towards sortition is just building trust between citizens and politicians again. Because, you know, citizens often distrust politicians, but the fact is politicians often distrust citizens too. And uh, trying to repair that gap, trying to bridge that gap, it's one of the most, I think, important things that citizens' assemblies can do. But it's also one of the things that kind of has to happen in order for the citizens' assemblies to happen at all. So there's a little bit of a chicken and an egg problem here. It's got to be uh, an ongoing process of building trust there uh, if you're going to institutionalize something like this. Why would politicians distrust citizens? What basis could they possibly have for that? Well, I think it's because the, where they where they see citizens, they see the people who respond to their sound bites and on, you know, they the they, they're used to dealing with citizens where, OK, either uh, they're these these are the citizens whom I'm putting out television ads for and trying to appeal to their basest kind of instincts, or they're the loud, angry, crazy people who write me angry letters and send me nasty threats and things like that. And so they're like, oh, you let ordinary people and they're just nuts. You know, they would do, they just run amok or something like that. Uh, you know, it, it, it is, uh, there have been a number of researchers who, you know, talk to politicians about, about this and, you know, they're, they're often, you know, they are, gen- there's a, um, there's a suspicion. Could these people handle it? These people off the street. And I think one thing that has come through again and again and again and again, if you look at the actual use of, of sortition, it's yes, they can. Um, you put, you put a group of people into a serious situation and say, here, we have a serious problem. Can you help us solve it? And guess what? Again and again and again, people step up and they say, yeah, we, we can do that. We can do that. Give us a chance. We'll do that. Okay, so very good. What, what do you think is the future of sortition? Where is it going to pop up and how? Well, I'm very much hoping that the Irish uh, experience continues. It's still happening on a sort of, as it were, an ad hoc basis here. I would love to see it become an official thing. That, and it started becoming that, I think, in a lot of places. People are getting used to the idea of saying, oh, yeah, that's one of the things we do. you know. And it would be lovely to see that become a regular part of the political process. You know, like everything else, like, oh, you got to register to vote and all of that. Oh, well, you might get called up for a citizen's assembly, you, just like the way you might get called up for a jury or something like that. Just make it become part of the political culture. I think that is what the advocates of sortition um, want more than anything else, because they think, hey, if this became a part of the political culture, uh, then it is really going to be a part of reviving uh, democracy will be a part of bringing back what's best of mm. democracy because democracy has been having a rough time lately. And this would really go some way towards helping to um, help it to rejuvenate it, I think. Okay, very good. Well, uh, Peter, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and find out more about sortition? Where do they go? Uh, well, of course, I uh, I wrote a book on the subject, which I definitely recommend. It's called The Luck of hmm. the Draw, The Role of Lotteries in Decision-Making. It's published by Oxford. It's a lovely book. I, I still stand by it, and I definitely recommend it. If people are interested in knowing more about what's going on in um, – 
uh, in terms of practical action, two places I would recommend. One, there is a blog where a lot of people talk about this. It's called Equality by Lot. Equality by Lot. You could just Google that. Uh, there's also an organization called the Sortition Foundation. The Sortition Foundation which again, if people could want to care to Google, they can uh, make uh, contact with people who are trying to figure out how to make uh, this sort of process uh, real in the political world. Very good. Okay. Well, Peter, thank you so much for coming in. I think it's, uh, it's a really fascinating concept. So I'm glad I had you on. Thank you. I'm happy to be to do it. Happy to do that. Uh, thanks for having me. Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by NeuroBloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.